Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. Hello, and thank you for deciding to spend a little bit of time with me today. If you are in Victoria, this is the middle week of your holidays. If you are in South Australia, and I think Northern Territory, welcome to the Term 3 break. It is the 27th of September, and I cannot believe we are hurtling into Term 4. My first year back is nearly finished. It's like that grad year when you finally finish that Term 4 and you've seen a whole school year unfold in front of you and you can breathe a sigh of relief. I feel a bit like that with one term to go. It's my first year back with children and understanding what that juggle is like. And I can't believe that we're nearly here at the end of the year. My year 12s are going back on site quite soon, which will be nice to at least have them in the classroom for a short time before exams and before they finish their final year of schooling with the roadmap back out in Victoria. There are staggered days, so students are back on site but not full time. And it just so happens that the days that I work are not the days that my year eights are back on site. So I will be teaching them remotely pretty much until week six, I think, of term four, which is, yeah, going to be interesting considering I teach junior science, which means there's not a lot of practice that can be done remotely. And I'm moving into text response, which is all analytical writing, which is much easier to teach in person. But, you know, we will do our best. So this episode is an episode I've recorded with Suzanne, who was the assistant principal in charge of HR for many years at my school. In fact, she hired me as well as many other teachers. She's also involved in supporting student teachers as they spend their time at the school, as well as graduate teachers helping them through their VIT process. And so I thought, what a perfect person to have on to discuss this really important topic of resumes, case selection criteria, interviews, job process, job applications. I have had a number of people recently reach out to me and ask if there was any support in my podcast for that or this particular topic. And there hasn't been because I was kind of waiting for the right person. And Suzanne, you'll hear me talk about it. I have actually asked her on a couple of times and she's been a little bit cagey and I think I got her on the right topic because she is such a wealth of knowledge on this one and I think incredibly helpful, really practical tips. And you can also see from her side what it's like hiring. So I'm going to leave it there. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to it on. Follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple. All of those things really help it be seen in the charts and help other teachers and lifelong learners to hear the conversations on here. If you want to give back to the podcast, there is a link in the show notes to buy me a virtual coffee if you'd like to do that, but no pressure. The likes and the sharing help heaps. So again, if you want to share on social media, tag me at Educating Laura, and I'll see you in two weeks. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Suzanne. How are you? 
I'm good, thanks, Laura. How are you? Really good. I'm so glad that you can join me today because I have had a number of requests from pre-service teachers that have wanted an episode to support them on the road to getting a job. And maybe I'll start with asking a bit of your background because you are the perfect guest to have to discuss this. So tell me a little bit about your roles in education. Oh, thank you. And thanks for inviting me, Laura. I feel very honoured that you've asked me to be part of this. So, well, I started out as a classroom teacher some years ago now and um, moved into the principal class as an assistant principal and then found myself in my my latest role or my last role was as an assistant principal was in um, HR. So doing all the recruiting, the advertising, appointments, interviewing, reading thousands and thousands of CVs and selection criteria, and then looking after teachers when they started at the school. So making sure that they were supported as they settled in and running a program both for new teachers and for the graduate teachers as well and getting them through the VIT process. As well as supporting student teachers too during their time at the school. Yes, you're right. I did do that as well. So, yes, that was my other role, one of my many hats. But, yes, looking after student teachers, finding their mentor teacher and then just checking in with them and making sure that their um, placements were going well and, uh, and if they had any additional needs or, you know, obviously if we had any concerns about them that they were addressed at the appropriate time. So you just said that you've read thousands and thousands of resumes and CVs and being in the government sector, the dreaded key selection criteria. I don't know about you, but I've always found it really challenging to work out, probably not you because you've read so many CVs, how you look good on paper. You know, how do you stand out on paper? So I'd like to know what your advice would be to somebody writing a CV, especially as a grad teacher, when your experience is quite limited. It's a really good question and you do need to stand out. I think the most applicants I ever had for one job was 98 for Mm. one position and so that's you have to stand out otherwise you just get overlooked. And so I guess just some really basic things that get you on the not looked at pile, for example, if you cannot spell principle, please learn to spell it because if you put the wrong principle, then you look pretty silly if you're going to work in a school. I mean, that's number one. Number two, make sure you can, if you're addressing the the letter, your covering letter to me, can you spell my name right and get all of those details right? And don't include in your cover letter that you're applying for a job at a school and you actually name another school. Mm. And I've seen that time and time again. So they're just a couple of, and if you don't get somebody to proofread, you know, one mm. or two errors. But if, you know, if, we, if you start reading someone's application and there's lots of errors, you start to think that maybe they don't even really care. So, yeah, there, there's some really basic things to do. I've always said you should target, you'd be better off targeting five to ten schools particularly as a grad rather than Mm. just and and personalize your application to those schools rather than just write send off 50 randomly to lots of schools because 
you're not actually targeting the school. You're not showing that you've got a fit for this school and what you've got to offer because you're not personalising the application. And I think that really shows when people don't do that. They're sort of, the, I guess, the overall um, fundamentals, I think, and, and a good cover letter, you know. Um, don't underestimate the capturing the panel's attention with a good cover letter. I do. Now, this is an interesting one, Laura, because lots of people have gap years now. I want to know what you did in your gap year. If you've got years missing, don't just leave it blank and leave me to guess what you did or didn't do in that time. If you went overseas and travelled, fine. If you went and worked in McDonald's, fine. But don't just leave it blank and leave people wondering what you did in that time. That's good advice. Do you think that people look down on anybody who has taken time off or hasn't gone straight into the job? Because I hear that a bit, people being concerned that, you know, they haven't gone straight to university and people might think that I didn't get in or whatever. I mean, can we dispel that now? Is that something that you even think? No, no. I, I often like looking at applicants who are a bit older or have had a bit of life experience, as I call it. I mean, I was one of those people who went from high school straight to uni, straight back into working in a another high school, not the school I went to school in. Uh, and, I mean, some people do that as well. And when I look back now and I think, wow, I was 22 and I didn't look much older than the students and that's because I wasn't much older than them. Whereas I think particularly people who are starting out at, with a few, you know, I know I don't say you need 10 years under your belt doing something else, but, you know, even if you've taken two or three years off between school and uni or between yeah, and that would be where I'd recommend. I think there's a danger if you decide to do that after you've finished your degree and then you leave a big gap and then you decide, oh, yeah, I want to come into teaching. I, I don't think that's a great idea because you're there's lots of grads who are coming out with new ideas and you've left a gap between finishing your degree and actually teaching. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend that per se. I mean, everyone's circumstances are different and it might lead you down that path. But I think, you know, if you're going to have a gap, then probably your best to take it somewhere between finishing, before you finish your degree. So either during your degree or after you finish high school. Uh, no, I don't think that's a disadvantage at all. In fact, I think it's an advantage. You don't come in looking like you're almost one of the kids. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the cover letter. How the do you make letter. yourself look good or how do you capture someone's attention on a cover yeah. letter? I guess well, it comes back to some of those basics I said about, you know, using the right names and spelling and not using the wrong school. But also you want, you want to draw um, the panel's attention to what you've got to offer so that, you know, things that you're enthusiastic about in teaching that a lot of people will mention. I think this is a good place to briefly mention something about the school that you're applying to you know, that you've read something on their website that resonates with you or matches your values. But please don't start quoting big chunks from school websites because they know what they've got on their website. You know, need to be selective. Mm. And, you know, if you're going to, please don't go through like every value of the school and talk about how it matches your values. I, I wouldn't recommend that. I think that's that just sounds a bit ridiculous, frankly. But by all means, pick a few things that you see 
either it is the vision and the value or the motto of the school or it's programs that the school has to offer that you may connect with or you've been involved with and something like that before. What do you think that you're going to bring to the job? So try and think about your own strengths and passions. What are you passionate about in terms of teaching? That's what you're trying to impress on that cover letter. But it's also not an essay. You know, it should be, it should be on one page. Don't start writing screeds of information because you've still got to do selection criteria. And I guess that's the difference in a government school to what mm -hmm. I understand happens in private schools. And sometimes people who've previously worked in private schools apply to government schools and they have got no concept about what this key selection criteria is and they don't do it. <laughs> you're, out of the, you're out of the race because one of the things you've got to do is to answer the key selection criteria and if you don't do it, you go in the out pile. Yes, I remember being at university and then speaking about key selection criteria but never actually going through the key selection criteria. So it wasn't until I actually had to do a job application that I connected this random concept that they were sort of talking about with actually having to complete this key selection criteria. So, I mean, my memory of it is that it's quite vague in terms of what it's asking or there's several ways you could interpret some of the key selection criteria. What are your tips on how to answer some of those those criteria, I suppose? Yeah, it, it, it can be really tough. And I think it's something that I think as if you're in your last year as a grad, uh, as a pre-service teacher, you'd be really well advised if you've got a good mentor teacher in a school to have a discussion with them about it. I often say to students on placement, have a go, you know, you know, look up just a random job. It doesn't have to be one you're applying for. Have a look, the standard graduate key selection criteria. Do some work on it. Don't leave it until, you know, there's three days before you see this job up and it's closing because the jobs on recruitment online for the government school have to be up for two weeks. And, you know, you might you re register, so you should be registered so it will alert you for jobs, but start early putting your key selection criteria together. I think there's a real sense... And this is why I was talking about targeting schools because I think if you're going to target schools then in your key selection criteria, you should be addressing at some point, this is what I can bring to blah, blah school in this area and try and then link it with something that you've learnt about the school. Now, that's not always easy, but if you can do it, I think... The other thing that's really important is to include examples. Now, for pre-service teachers, obviously that's got to come from your placements. Don't be afraid to do that. Use those examples to back up anything you're saying. You know, if the question's about how you work with the Victorian curriculum, then don't just vaguely talk about some curriculum, but try and give some examples from your placement of what you have done in this area and Actually, I, I quite like applications where perhaps there's a couple of paragraphs and then maybe some dot point examples of what people have done. It's just quite easy to read the dot points. And, you know, when you're reading lots of applications, I dare say, you know, it does. If, it's, it's, it, if you make it easy to read, then that's a really good thing for the panel. And 
yeah, if you've got a good mentor teacher, then certainly talk to them. Get some thoughts from them about what the key selection criteria, what it means, what exactly are they asking for here. Don't just try and guess. You know, you would hope that everybody has some mentor teacher in their placements that they feel like that they could have that conversation with. And don't be afraid to do that. What about if you have experience in a role that's not linked directly to teaching? So say, for example, you were a basketball coach or you've been doing some community service work or something that you believe that would actually showcase what you can do, have done, can bring, even if it's not in a traditional teaching sense, would you suggest that people would bring that into the application or not? Absolutely. So it should be on your CV as well. I like to see that. I like to see people who have done other things that particularly relate to working with young people, but not exclusively that. And definitely if it fits within the criteria, like if the criteria is about your relationships with students and parents and the broader community, well, you can absolutely use those examples in that key selection criteria. And in fact, you'd be mm. silly not to. You'd be silly not to draw on that experience to, to add to what you can bring. And, you know, some people have done some amazing voluntary work as well. Some people go back and volunteer in schools that they did placements in. Some applicants have, you know, gone back and been part of the school production or the art show or, the, or you know, gone back and gone on excursions or gone on camps. All of that looks fabulous both on your resume and in your key selection criteria. So make sure you include that for sure. Do you recommend that students do voluntary work at schools if they feel as though they haven't had enough opportunity in their placements? Do you think that's a good idea? If there's an opportunity to do so, I mean, within the confines of everything else that, you know, you might having juggle jobs, part-time jobs, perhaps study and so on. But any voluntary experience with young people always goes a long way to showing really your passion to want to be in the profession. And I think if you don't have passion for working with young people, then maybe teaching isn't for you. And so, you know, you need to you need to demonstrate that. And again, when you know, back to your earlier question, what makes a standout? What how do I stand out from other people? Well, people, you know, who have gone back and volunteered their time. That says a lot about them and, and their commitment to but I know not everybody might have the opportunity to do that. Yeah. It's not a, oh, you haven't got a hope of getting a job if you haven't done that. But if you've done it, make sure you celebrate and let the panel know. Yeah. Let's talk about interviewing. I think as a grad teacher, it can feel very intimidating. I did have another AP on earlier this year who said that when he answers questions, he likes to talk about, I am this. I have done this and I will do this. So these are the kinds of things he tries to include when answering questions. Mm. What's some of your advice for answering questions and really nailing an interview? I think that approach uh, is good. I mean, I think that's also a way of addressing your key selection criteria, almost this um, philosophical statement about the question mm -hmm. and or the key selection criteria and in an interview about the question then try and put in some examples of what you've done and then try to tie it back into to what little you may or may or how much you know about the school and what you can bring to the school. And I think that that's a good basis of trying to set your mind 
to this is almost a, a bit of a formula of how I'll answer questions. And I think a lot of, of course, we, we expect people to be nervous in an interview. Who, who isn't? Mm. You know, of course, people are nervous. And, you know, I guess my role was sharing a panel was to try and help people be relaxed. So I, I would often start with a question like, you know, what, are your, what strengths and skills and qualities will you bring to this position, hoping that it would open up people, make them feel comfortable because they're talking about themselves. And the number of times that stumped people as if it was the most unusual question to ever be asked in their life to me, I thought it was a really good opener, but not everybody responded that way. It was kind of like, oh, uh, you know, oh, um, I'm well organised, and then they couldn't seem to think of another quality or skill they had beyond that. And I, mm. I thought that was a bit telling that in preparing for an interview, you actually hadn't thought through what skills and strengths you had to bring to this job, you know, because that... That should be the fundamental basis of your application in the, you know, even your key selection criteria. When you're selling yourself, you should have thought about what have I got to offer this school? And if you haven't thought about that, then you probably need to do so. The other thing I say for preparing for interviews is try and think, talk, talk to some people, talk to a mentor teacher, talk to friends, try and think about 10 questions or that people that you might get asked. I don't know, you may not get asked any of them, but at least practice at home. I think some people think they'll just kind of walk in and have a chat, but you do need to do your homework. You should know the school you're going to. You should review the website and other information you might have. You should know yourself and your skills and your abilities. You should know your own application. Sometimes it's kind of like people forget what they've written in their application. And it's like, okay, uh, yeah, we, we, we know that because, you know, and it's, it's, it's quite, I, I don't know, I don't understand how people don't know their application. Whenever I was being interviewed, I used to prepare, I, I would just practice question after question. I'd practice speaking aloud, pretending I was having an interview. I didn't need anybody on the other side of the table. I would just practice speaking aloud because you've got to try and get over the nerves. And as I said, we expect people to be nervous. Don't feel that you can never ask for a question to be repeated. Mm. And everyone interviews a bit differently. Some places will give you 10 minutes with the questions. Other places will give you the questions when you walk in and sit down with the interview. It, it all varies. Obviously, if you've had the questions for 10 or 15 minutes in a room on your own, then the quality of the answers would be the expectation they'd be higher than if you've walked in and the questions are cold. And a lot of people bring in portfolios, which is fine. I wanted to ask about this. Yes. Thoughts about the because I know there's a lot of emphasis on the mm -hmm. portfolios at university and back when I was doing it, it was a physical portfolio that you brought that I think at the time was three times bigger than my own head, mm -hmm. um, very cumbersome, and I'm sure... Yeah. In my grad interview, yeah. I worked it into it because I felt like I had to. Mm. I feel like they're digital now. But are they that important in an interview? Do you expect mm. to see them? Look, people come in and sometimes they'll give us samples of a unit of work that they might have done, which I find quite useful to have a look at, like physically look at. Yeah. I've had people come in with digital portfolios and then they can't open them. 
and their computer won't mm. work and they can't make connections with the Wi-Fi and they can't hotspot and then they get flustered. Yeah. They're all at sea basically. They don't know what to do now because the basis of, of what they wanted to talk about has disappeared. So I think you need a backup plan if you're going to come in digitally, even though in this day and age you would think there wouldn't be a computer problem, but I still see it. And the other one is particularly art teachers, for example, will bring in, often bring in, you know, big portfolios, physical artwork and so on. And whatever portfolio you've got, can I suggest you sort of give it to the panel and let them look at it. I've had people sort of hold their portfolio and want to sort of read every page to the panel. And I find that quite excruciating, frankly. Ah. I don't want you to read me your portfolio. Right. I'd like to have a quick look at it. And if there's something of interest or something I want to explore further, I'll pull it out or, you know, get you to talk about it. But please don't read me word for word your portfolio. I've had a few different interview experiences. Some you have obviously the panel has their questions that they're just going to ask you. Each panel member has a question and they don't really deviate much from a script. I've also had interviews where people just chat to you, like you're sort of talking and they interrupt you and go, tell me more about that. And they actually, it feels very conversational. And I think you need to, to be prepared for the fact that some people might hear you say something in, in your um, answer and go, oh, tell me more about that. You have to be ready to kind of move yeah. with where the interviewer wants to go, I think, too. Absolutely. And sometimes it's also a way of perhaps trying to steer them on the right path, you know, like especially with grads, I like to try and mm. be as gentle as I can in an interview. And if I sort of think they're, do they're deviating from the answer, I'll try and pull them back with a question, doesn't always work, but, you know, you do try and get them back on track. The other thing that I see far too often, Laura, is at the end of an interview, I will always say to, and I do it, I guess not everyone does, but I always say, is there th anything else you would like to add in support of your application? And the number of times, far too often, people sit there and say, no, and that's it, no, full stop. And I'm just gobsmacked. Here is your perfect opportunity to wow us with a final summary of who you are and basically why we should pick you and employ you, and you sit there and say, no, no, come on. You know, that should be in preparing for your interview. You need to be prepared that you might get asked that. Now, I don't want you to talk for another half an hour, but I do want you to sum up who you are and why I should pick you. So, you know, a summary of your, of your qualities and your enthusiasm and why you really want to work at that school. That's what I should be hearing. Make a statement that is powerful before you leave the interview. Don't just sit there and say, no, nothing else to say. I just think you're missing an incredible opportunity to make a final impression with the panel. So don't waste it. You also talked about your um, involvement in supporting yes. grad teachers in their first year. I had the privilege of working with you as a grad teacher as well, so I can speak very highly of the support that Thank I got you. from you in my first Thank year. What would you like to tell grad teachers about that first year and going through that VIT process and what, what words of wisdom can you impart on them in that first year? So what you should what you should expect from the school is a mentor teacher to, to guide you through that process these days. And I would hope you get more than just a mentor teacher. Um, certainly 
I used to run, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, new teachers meeting. So that was everybody who was new to the school. And I would run usually fortnightly meetings. And then on the alternate week, I would run grad meetings just for graduate teachers because I think their needs are quite different from an experienced teacher. And, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes people thought I was expecting too much in terms of meeting time with the grads. But I, when people came to me with those concerns, I would say, okay, go and talk to the grads and come back and see me if they tell you that what I'm doing is not worthwhile. Nobody ever came back to tell me that the grads thought I was wasting their time. And so what I did in these meetings, and I can't guarantee that every school does this, but I think they should, I used to try and prepare the grads, first of all, for what was coming up ahead, you know, so... We might be going to be having uh, parent-teacher interviews, student interviews. What will that look like? What should you prepare? How might you handle it? What to do if this happens? So I'd go through those scenarios of, you know, you might have a parent that's proving difficult. What do I do with that situation? Or somebody turns up unexpectedly. They don't have an appointment, but I've got time to see them. What do I do? And so on. How do I prepare for, for interviews? And I mean... That's improved heaps since, I mean, when I was a young teacher, we used to just be in this big hall and you never knew who was going to come and sit in front of you for an interview. Mm-hmm. But you couldn't, you didn't, you couldn't prepare because you didn't know who was coming. Whereas at least these days, you know, there are booking systems and you know in advance yes. generally who you should be seeing. And I will say for a grad teacher, you do tend to get booked up a little bit more mm. because you are new. People don't know who you are. There's perhaps been students saying, oh, she, you know, she's really young. Or he's really, it's his first year. And parents like, oh, okay. <laughs> so be prepared that you might get a few additional yes. people coming to see you that first year. And because you've got a list of interviews, I advise the grads. I said it takes a bit of time, but it would be great if you did a summary of what you want to say to each parent in advance just gives you confidence that, you know, when the parent sits down, you you know, you know what you need to say and what you want to say. And most grads do that, take that advice, and they have always come back and told me it was so good because I felt confident. I wasn't sort of flipping over my whichever way they do their record keeping, you know, on their computers or in a a teacher diary they didn't have to flick through and try and find information you know they had it all so that was some of the grad meetings talking and and we would just sit and talk and I would give them you know what questions do you have for me and and they might talk about a difficult class or they weren't sure about something that they were teaching and how could they get support so we would talk and you know often we I mean I tried to keep those meetings to just an hour but often it would be an hour and a half and they would still, you know, and then I'd be sort of pushing them out the door saying, come on, come on, you do need to get home. Um, so I think they found them really useful. And, you know, it's a lot. Your grad year is is a big year. It's a massive year. And the other things that, you know, I used to say to them, you know, start report writing now or start, you know, making sure, try and make sure your assessment all doesn't fall on the same weekend that you've piled up with work and then, you know, nothing else is coming in for another couple of weeks. Just sort of little tips and hints like that. This is what the calendar looks like. This is what impact it will have on your teaching because they don't know. They see these 
dates with things on them. They don't know what history incursion means maybe, yeah. you know, the resilient project, what does what impact will that have or sports day, what does that mean for me? What do I do on sports day? So, you know, it was just trying mm-hmm. to make sure that they were as well informed as possible about what to expect. And then later in the year, of course, talking about what might be happening the following year. Yeah. Could I offer them a job or not offer them a job um, as the case may be? This is something we do need to talk about. I think that in my first year, the running was a three-year contract. Most people were prepared to be on contract for three years. I, I am not in that position, so I can't speak to that anymore. But it is a little bit of a tenuous time for those first couple of years of, of teaching as a grad. What kind of advice would you give them regarding the fact that sometimes it isn't stable. Yeah, and that, and it is really tough and I feel, and I, you know, I made a point of trying to be as honest as I could with with all any staff who were on contract about the yep. possibility that they did or didn't have a job for next year. And I always tried to be honest with them, not tried to be honest with them. I was honest with them and I'd let them know as early as possible. And if I didn't know what was happening, I would tell them that and I'd say, look, I might have a position for you, but don't put all your eggs in this basket. You need to start applying elsewhere. But if you do, can you let me know? Because the day you might be, you know, got an interview somewhere else, I might be able to offer you a job. So let's, you know, keep lines of communication open. So that was really important. I think things have improved a little bit, Laura, because the agreement now requires in March each year for the school to explain why people are on contract. Like Mm -hmm. if they've already had a year's contract and they're into their next year, well, why you still got them on contract? And obviously sometimes you've got a person, you know, who's gone on leave or extended leave that you weren't expecting and so on. So I don't think it, you know, it doesn't always drag out to sort of three, three years now, but sometimes it does and, that's a product of the system, which makes it tough. But getting back to what do you do? You know, one of the things I say to grads is, you know, try and make yourself indispensable. And as tough as it is, and I know the grad year is busy, but try and get involved in something of the school. You know, if you go on a camp, if your students are going to camp, if you're into school production, get involved in the school production. If you, you love your sport, coach a team. If you're into chess and there's no you know get involved in the chess club or the debating or you know because schools the extracurricular programs run on the voluntary goodwill of teachers and what you want to show is that you've got something to contribute how do we make it clear to grad teachers that those things are important as well as your well-being because this is a hard thing with the grad year. It's a very hard year. It's a big year. I mean, you are yeah. under-allotted somewhat. I think it's two or three classes yeah. under-allotted. Yeah. Two, 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 I was yeah. in production in my first year doing the choreography, and I'm sure that that was part of the reason of standing out because I was doing something different, not just mm-hmm. being in the classroom. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, within the first five to seven years, burnout in teachers is quite high. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you strike think- that balance, do you think? Because I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, it is it is tough and teaching is, is demanding. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think has changed quite dramatically from when I started is 
the internet and the emails and uh, kind of being on, on, mm. you know, after Absolutely. hours more. And I mean, teachers always did correction and we always did preparation, but that constant perhaps email interaction with students or, or and or parents. So I think you need to draw a line in the sand sometimes and you need to say, you know, make a decision yourself. You know, I'm not going to be checking emails on my phone at 10 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. And personally, and some people might be critical of what I'm about to say, I don't think you should be. Mm. You know, I think you have to do, I mean, and everyone, you know, we all talk about work-life balance, but you also have to do, have to take some responsibility for that yourself because I, for many years, taught Year 12 students and obviously in the lead-up to a SAC and, and, you know, further on to their final exams, you do want to be on and available for them later into the evenings and I would always do that. But if there's no, you know, assessment coming up, what, why should I have to be checking my emails at 10 o'clock at night? I don't, I don't think I should have to. Now, if that's how you want to work, that's your prerogative, but in terms of your own well-being, I don't know that being online that late is advisable. Mm. The other thing I wanted to say too was that you also don't have to recreate the wheel. There is great mm. curriculum that has been written for you, great unit planners, great resources. Teachers at their very core are helpers anyway. If a grad teacher was to ever come to me, I would be very happy to give all my resources if they wanted them, if that was going to help them, yeah. you know, in a particularly difficult time. And so I think maybe by, you know, working out how much you create, how much you use from others, how much you kind of work within a team as well, you should be able to minimise that workload. And honestly, in my first year, I don't think I was much more than three to four lessons ahead and that's okay. If you kind of move yeah. with the students, you don't have to have the whole year planned out either. No. And I think the curriculum, and you're right, Laura, you know, and I, I think also, you know, getting involved in some extracurricular activities also can connect you to other support structures within the school. So not necessarily just the head of your head of department or your mentor teacher, VIT mentor teacher or your, your immediate colleagues, but it can also give you a broader support network but certainly in terms of curriculum I mean you do feel like you want to be contributing but people also recognize the pressure on grad teachers so don't feel like you have to reinvent the wheel in fact I think teachers create a lot of extra work for themselves in doing that and you know I can I mean I've worked in a in a team with my U12 studies for years where you know we would say okay I'm gonna I'm doing this unit you're doing that one I'll, I'll write this sack you write that one you know we would share the tasks obviously we would help each other and check each other's work and contribute but you share the workload and I think that's really important and and if you're working with grad teachers as you said you know I was always happy to share I, I was happy to give them a lot you know and really didn't expect anything in return other than a thank you, you know, like I didn't expect them to to come back having recreated everything. But but happy, you know, if they came up with a bit, you know, an improvement on what I was sharing, then, yeah, let's look at it. And, yeah, as for being months ahead in my planning, oh, goodness me, no. I was never that, I don't think. I don't think, because you never know too, Laura. I mean, you know, some times you know, all the best 
laid plans and then, you know, you go off on a tangent in the classroom, a very important perhaps topical event or something, and then everything can be thrown out anyway. Or classes get cancelled for some reason of something that happens or whatever. But it, it is difficult, but you have to put your foot down. You have to make work-life balance. I've always said you could work 24-7 and you could still do more preparation, more correction, more creations of engaging curriculum and and the job would never finish. So yeah. at some point you have to draw a line in the sand because nobody has the capacity to do that workload. No, not at all. And unfortunately I find at the moment during remote, you know, I, I don't have an opportunity to, to go in with my knowledge and just create a discussion. Like now, I think that's why... Yeah. And that's why remote learning is so much more challenging because I have to create the resource that I naturally would just be able to deliver being in a classroom. And so know that you don't always have to have 10 resources for every class either. You can actually create an activity or get the kids to do things too. Like I, used to, I just did with my year 12s, they had to submit me five trivia questions. They wrote the whole quiz. I didn't do it, but they loved it. Yeah. And they then put themselves into the quiz and they, you know, did little funny things that they find interesting so, you know, you can work with the kids as well rather than having to make it all on you. And I do feel like we put that on ourselves a lot to have it all figured out all the time. Yeah, I think we do. And, look, I guess, you know, if you're well organised, you want to know that you've got it all planned and sorted. But at the end of the day, you know, teaching is also somewhat unpredictable. Definitely. Uh, which is probably what I loved about the job. Yeah. Uh, and still love about the job is you never quite know. You can get to work thinking this day is going to be like this and none of it pans out like that way. So, uh, you know, that's the joy of the job and the love for working with young people. Yeah. Is there any advice or anything else you'd like to tell grads and pre-service teachers as they enter into this really fun, challenging time of job applications? Start early. Start early on your your application. As I said, don't leave it until you you know you've seen the job of your dreams and then find yourself floundering. Floundering. I mean, uh, and also make sure you've got your referees sorted. And that might mean. I mean, I've contacted referees who have been surprised that they're a referee. Uh, they should never be surprised. Okay. You should have spoken to them and asked them, are they happy to be your referee? Otherwise, it's not a good look. Mm. And people are, you, can be quite annoyed. Yeah, right. Um, you know, when, when you contact them and they didn't know they were a referee and some people are, you know, and, and that may not, that might uh, influence the quality of the reference they give you if you haven't asked them. So, A, make sure you ask them. And I don't really want, the owner of the shop that you worked for when you were 16 as a referee. I want, you know, I, I want maybe somebody from your uni course. I want, and, and ideally a couple of your mentor teachers. You know, they're the people I want to speak to. They're the people I want to hear from, not the person you worked for. Do you find that if, if a mentor teacher is omitted and there's no one that seems to have anything to say about someone during their placements... Do you think that's, that doesn't look great? Doesn't look great at all, absolutely. That's okay. a real problem. And if you're a yep. teacher, a current teacher, and you don't have your principal, that's a problem too. I, okay. I know there's some, there's some um, 
other opinions about that, particularly in, I think, in the private sector about, oh, you know, you don't name your referees until you know you've got a good chance of getting the job because it can affect your employment and so on. And I don't know enough about, I've never worked in the private system, so I don't know enough about that. Certainly in the government system, there'd be an expectation that you would have your principal as a referee. Yep. And if you don't, then I'd be wondering why. Okay. What about an assistant principal? Always the principal or assistant principal is as good? Yeah, look, assistant principal is okay. And, look, I've had people that don't miss them and I ring them up and I say, because um, you can, I, as long as you advise them, I'll, I ring them up and I say, I'm going to contact your principal. And I'm entitled to do that ah. as long as I let them. There you go. Mm. What do grads need to know about merit and equity and how that, plays into the interview process, the job process? Like what are you kind of bound to in terms of merit and equity to ensure that it is a fair process? So it it needs to be a fair process. So everyone needs to be treated fairly. And, I mean, there's some basics there. The panel needs to have gender representation, not gender equity. You know, it doesn't have to be equal people, but you've got to have gender Mm -hmm. representation on the panel. So you shouldn't walk into an all-male or all-female panel because there's a problem there. And that's why uh, earlier you mentioned about fairly standard questions and not deviating a lot. And I guess I was one of those people who liked that because I felt there was real consistency in the way I treated all applicants. If we didn't, I'm not saying we never deviated, but I didn't like sort of long conversations that went off in all different directions because I felt that that, wouldn't be fair to all applicants if all applicants weren't treated the same. And so there, and, and you know, the idea is uh, we're picking the best applicant based on application, reference checks, and the interview process. So they're the three things that make up that selection process. I was often keen on doing reference checks before interviews, just sort of helped us give a, a more rounded view of the person also means that if you're really impressed and you've already done your reference checks, I could get on the phone fairly quickly once the process was finished and offer mm. a job. Because I, like everybody, I you know I thought I've been quick enough, and the person, unbeknownst to me, has walked out the door from an interview, got in their car, and got a phone call and taken a job somewhere else before I've any, even finished the interview yeah. process. So. Sometimes, you know, you need to be quick to get the best applicants. But, yeah, so the merit process, it is very clear there. And, yeah, we, we have to – each panel has to have one, at least one member who's been trained by the Merit and Protection Board. Okay, and that was you oftentimes, wasn't it? Yes, it was often me. Not not only me, but, yes, I was, um, I was the trained one. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, I guess after you've had an interview – and if you don't get the job, be willing, and most people are, to take feedback. You know, and sometimes I would often say to people, because I would ring them and say, look, I'm really sorry you didn't get the job. However, and try and be keen to give them feedback. Sometimes I would say to them, you might not want to hear this now, so I'm happy to talk to you at another time. And some people would didn't want to talk about it then, and that I completely understand that. And look, you know, and sometimes 
the decision was really hard to, to pick between applicants, you know, and I felt, you know, it was tough to tell a person that they didn't get the job, but I always tried to give them good feedback about, you know, that they'd been really close and it was a hard decision. And, and I know some people think, oh, well, you know, what comfort is there in that? Well, there should be a lot of comfort because you, you know you're doing a lot of things right mm. and you need to build on that. And, you know, you may have just been so unlucky not to have got that job. Would you encourage people to call and ask for feedback if they don't get it directly? Yes, yes. And, look, not everybody does what I did, which was I rang. I didn't ring um, everyone who applied because there's not enough hours mm. in the day. But I would always ring everybody who we interviewed with an outcome. But not everybody does that. So yes, I would encourage people. And look, I know sometimes it's a bit of a, it's a bit hard on the ego to ask for feedback. But if you want to learn about how you can improve for the next interview, then you need feedback. Absolutely. And I mean, I've been on a panel once or twice, and so it's really hard sometimes. It's really hard, mm -hmm. and you know, it comes down to one little thing that somebody said that you're like, well, they've yes. done that, and that person hasn't, and. At the same time, sometimes people can come in and get it completely wrong and you think, I yes. hope you're not doing that on the next interview and then the next interview as well. So it's, you know, it is all meant with the hope that we'll then get a job even if you didn't get this one. That's right. And, and I mean, I've had people come in for interviews and seriously they've, they've provided like one-sentence answers to the questions. And so an interview that I've thought will go for 20 to 25 minutes is suddenly over in under 10, you know. So, and that, I mean, I think that's either incredible nerves or lack of preparation. But people need that feedback. You know, if you you can't answer questions in one sentence and think you've done a good job in yeah. the interview. But you need to know that if that's, if that's what yeah. you're doing. Um, you've just got to sell yourself. That's what you're there for. You're there to sell yourself. And you've got to convince the panel that you're the best applicant for this job. And... I know a lot of people are embarrassed and they don't want to talk about what they're good at or, you know, uh, sell themselves, but you need to because nobody else will if you, oh, well, your referees will, but if it's not a combined thing with you and your referees selling yourself, you won't get, you know, you may not get the job. So, and, and it's tough. It's tough. I get that and it's intimidating and it's nerve wracking, but, you know, you got to do it. We all did. Yeah. And, and that's it. Like we've all done it. You know, we, we've, everybody sitting on that interview panel has been sitting in that position that you're sitting in mm. at one time. And as I said, the few panels that I've been on, not as many as you obviously, <laughs> people are really wanting you to succeed. I, I found at least anyway. Oh, absolutely. I don't want anyone to, to sit there and be embarrassed or feel foolish or wish that the floor would open up and swallow them. That's not my aim. I want to get the best out of the applicant. I want to know, and I want to know that they're a right fit for the school. And that's that's the other thing. You know, it needs to be a fit, a good fit both ways. You know, sometimes I've had applicants. You know, well, usually they've been offered two jobs, and you're waiting for them to choose. <laughs> the foot's the shoes on the other foot. Then, isn't it? You know, I'm the one sitting there waiting, yeah. trying to convince them why they should come and work with us. Nice yeah. position for them to be in, but nerve-wracking for me as um, the person who wants to employ them. Yeah, there you go, the other side of it. It is the other side, but lucky that person. 
Thank you so much. As I said, I have had a number of requests, so I'll get this one out fast. So I feel like this is the time, isn't it? This is the time that the jobs are coming out and schools are recruiting and, yeah, so I'll definitely get this one out quickly. Well, thanks, Laura. It's been great having a chat with you and um, I hope... I hope people have found something useful out of what we've talked about tonight. Of course they will. Oh, I hope so because, um, you know, it's a real passion of mine and a real passion of mine working with with grad teachers as well because, you know, that is the future, isn't it? It's the future of the profession. And, you know, there is a lot of talk out there about, you know, teachers burn out in five to seven years. And, and of course, it's possible. And that's where you do have to take, you know, self-care and develop good collegiate relationships as well, you know, but also make sure you, you look after yourself. That's just critical. If you want to be around for as long as I've been around in teaching, you've got to look after yourself. The other thing that somebody told me when I was a young teacher was you're given long service leave for a reason. Take it. You know, I know people who've gone their whole careers without taking long service leave. I took mine. And I've used mine up over the years and it's it gives you a great boost mm. to have taken some leave. Yeah. So that's my other advice. Don't look at it as just something you want to build up forever, but take it to recharge the batteries, Yeah. to rest and travel or do something else, paint the house, whatever you want to do with it. But I think it's good for you physically and mentally to have a break. Yeah. I also think too, and this is something that you did for me and for many grad teachers, was whenever I would come into your office, I would always get a realistic outcome. So if I came in really overwhelmed about something, you would say to me, okay, well, this is the situation. You'd make it very clear to me what the situation was and what was possible and what was impossible. And then from there, I had to make a decision as to whether or not it was worth me getting worked up about, upset about, or whether or not I needed to change tact or what my support was. And I think that you really need people in the profession that can show you and tell you what the reality of this job is because sometimes you can get really worked up on things that you can never change. You can't change them. That's just the job. And then there's sometimes where you can actually have support that you don't realise is available to you. And so finding those people in your school that you can go to and very honestly and openly speak to about whatever's going on confidentially, which I think yeah. everybody at the school that we worked at will say about you, but then you. gives you that, okay, this is your situation. We can go down this path or this path. What do you want to do and feel completely supported? Because there will be things obviously that are hard, but there mm. are also things within the profession and within the career that are very, very supportive for you and that you are entitled, like you just said about the long service leave, entitled to mm-hmm. take. Yep. And I think those people in the profession are absolutely gold and you need to find them. Absolutely. And and sometimes you'll find them within your school and sometimes maybe you have to go outside your school. I, I often find people, well, I mean, I mean, I'm still friends with people I went to uni with. You know, we're, we're all still teachers. And so sometimes we support, we find support within each other even though we work in very different schools. And interestingly, you know, they'll, they'll come to me with, this happened, what do you reckon? You know, they want my opinion on things because of my role in my school. So it varies, but you do need to find that support structure and, and yeah, people you can trust. Mm. Thank you again. 
My pleasure. You know, I've really, I've really loved talking about this. I wasn't, well, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, you just got my, um, I've tried to have you on a couple of times and I'm like, I've got to get her on for something. She really is, feels that she can, so I'm glad I got you for this because you are so amazing. Oh, thank you. I, you're right. I, I've been the reluctant, uh, <laughs> reluctant to come on and now you can't stop me talking. <laughs> I always knew that would be the way, Suzanne. So thank you. <laughs> well, I can't imagine why, Laura. But no, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you know there's some pearls of wisdom out there for um, for anyone who's applying for a job. And I wish you all the best. And just remember, you know, it, it's an amazing profession. And um, remembering what you're doing is you're changing lives. You know, you really you really do impact on lives and. It's not like people who say, oh, I built that bridge or that building or sometimes we don't know the impact we have. But I've been lucky over the years to, you know, still have some contact, as you do, Laura, with former students or we end up working with former students, teaching with them as our colleagues, and that's just amazing. And and it just, um, yeah, it just gives you such a, I don't know, a boost and just it makes it all worthwhile. You know, everything that you do comes back tenfold, I think, and, you just know you're making a difference. You know, you care about the kids and you're passionate for them and that's what, what they need and they want a teacher who is passionate about kids and about their subject.